the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the Daily Show Prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. All right, are we good? Hello, everybody. I'm in San Antonio, Texas. Zach, you've got to give me the cue when to go on. We've got uh, Sean is on vacation. So if you hear me talk to Zach, you'll understand why. Hello, everybody. It is. Uh, it was a wonderful night with listeners in San Antonio. And... Uh, as a good example of it's not worth worrying, I've done that subject on a couple of occasions on the Happiness Hour, and one of my theories on why it's not worth worrying is that what you worry about, at least half the time, doesn't actually materialize. So I'll give you my example. All last week, I've been reading about extreme heat in central Texas. And I think of Texas as humid as well, which is not correct. It's humid in Houston. It's humid in Galveston and alternates in Dallas. But it's not true for the whole state. There's a lot of dryness. Be that as it may, it it reached well over 100 last week. And my event being a cigar event was outdoors. Although some cigar events that I do for stations, it's a popular way of having me... Um, it's fine with me. I get to smoke a cigar while I talk. But it was it was outdoors, and I was worried because I can't stand heat and humidity. A heat I can take with humidity. I, I, it's very unpleasant. To make a long story short, it was quite comfortable. There was nothing wrong. There was a breeze. We were in the shade. The sun set. And it was a great example of... It's not worth worrying because if it happens, your worrying didn't stop it. And if it doesn't happen, happen, you worried for no good reason. Well, there's a uh, rather sad story. There are many, obviously, that I'll bring to your attention. It's from Gallup, the big polling company. Extreme pride in being American remains near record low. At 39%, the share of U.S. adults who are extremely proud to be American is essentially unchanged from last year's 38% record low. The combined 67% of America who are now extremely or very proud, 28% also aligns with the historically subdued 65% reading one year ago. Another 22% of adults currently say they are moderately proud 
while 7% are only a little and 4% not at all. And it's just, if you look at the graph, it, it, does, it does keep getting low. When Gallup first asked the question in January 2001, 55% of U.S. adults were extremely proud to be American. However, pride soon intensified after 9-11, with extreme pride ranging from 65 to 70% between 2002 and 2004. I so vividly remember high school kids selling American flags, waving them and selling American flags. And to think that it was only 22 years ago is... uh, is almost unbelievable. Just 22 years ago, high school kids were waving American flags on the streets, and I and I live in the L.A. area, which is not known for its patriotic fervor, shall we say. The decline is dramatic. And, of course, I believe it is overwhelmingly due to the fact that the left has taken over the rhetoric of the country. You live in a systemically racist society. Every white is a white supremacist. To be black is to be a victim. To be a woman is to be a victim. To be Hispanic is to be a victim. Your past stinks and your future is death. That's the message so it's uh, it's no wonder that this is so low. In terms of the combined percentages saying they were extremely or very proud, roughly 9 in 10 Americans expressed high levels of pride in the earliest years of the trend through 2004. In 2005, the, that figure began falling into the 80% range before dropping to 75%. In 2017, and staying below 70% since 2020. Demographic differences in Americans' national pride driven by partisanship. This is interesting. Party identification remains the greatest demographic differentiator in expression of national pride. Republicans have consistently more likely, have been consistently more likely than Democrats and independents to express pride in being American throughout the trend. That gap has been particularly pronounced since 2018, with more than twice as many Republicans as Democrats saying they are extremely proud. How could a Democrat be proud? Their president in his inaugural address, spent much of the inaugural address speaking about how a great chunk of this country is evil. A first, I have to believe, a first in American inaugural speech history. It's amazing any Democrats feel pride in being American. Nearly twice as many Republicans as Democrats saying they are extremely proud. Republicans are also nearly twice as likely as independents to express the highest degree of pride. And 
that that is clear. It would be interesting. I wonder if they do it via sex. That that would be an interesting thing to look at. Listen to this. This is very uh, significant. We have a graph here. Age group, 18 to 34, 36 to 54, 55 and older, and they do it based on Republican, Independent, and Democratic identification. Republicans, Independents, Democrats. So 55 and older Democrats, 38% say they're extremely proud. Guess what the percentage of 18 to 34-year-olds who are Democrats who say they are extremely proud? 12. So give or take the margin of error, it's basically 1 in 10 Democrats under 35 feels extremely proud to be an American. By the way, it, it's it, it's worth noting that among Republicans of that age group, it's 42, as compared to 68% in that, in that group, or even 35 to 54 among Republicans is 64%. Having said that, I want you to know that my pride uh, has diminished. This country has become the greatest exporter of horrible ideas on earth. I, I love this country, but I, I don't lie to myself. When bad people take over a country, it's difficult to have pride in it. On the other hand, you want to be a patriot. What I still love is first the America prior to the last couple of decades. And I, I love the American founders. And I love the American value system. All of that has been unique. So it's actually a subject that I think is worth covering. If you are a conservative, what is your feeling toward the country right now? We we have to be honest with each other. I mean, there is a point where the toxicity of the left is is such that it has an effect. How could it not? Gold dealers are a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. What sets these companies apart and whom can you really trust? This is Dennis Prager for AmFed Coin and Bullion, my choice for buying precious metals. When you buy precious metals, it's imperative that you buy from a trustworthy and transparent dealer that protects your best interests. So many companies use gimmicks to take advantage of inexperienced gold and silver buyers. Be cautious of brokers offering free gold and silver or brokers that want to sell you overpriced collectible coins, claiming they appreciate 
create more than gold and silver? What about hidden commissions and huge markups? Nick Grovich and his team at AmFed always have your back. I trust this man. That's why I mentioned him by name. Nick's been in this industry over 42 years, and he's proud of providing transparency and fair pricing to build trusted relationships. If you're interested in buying or selling, call Nick Grovich and his team at AmFed Coin and Bullion, 800-221-7694. AmericanFederal.com. AmericanFederal.com. Supreme Court found it unconstitutional to consider race, Wall Street Journal, in university admissions, eliminating the principal tool the nation's most selective schools have used to diversify their campuses. Thursday's 6-3 to three decision will force a reworking of admissions criteria throughout American higher education, where for decades the pursuit of diversity has been an article of faith. The ruling's ramifications will likely extend beyond universities to recast the role of racial preferences in America. Leaders of American business and public institutions warned in friend of the court briefs that a ruling against affirmative action would deprive the nation of leaders who reflect the population's racial diversity. Oh, I want to see that. There's a link to that. I have a lot to say about that. The need for people to look like you in leadership positions. Wow. I grew up as an Orthodox Jew, and I'm still a religious Jew, just not denominationally identifiable. And I remember as a kid... That all the all the figures that were in the, the school books, you know, like C Spot Run, what was it, uh, Jill, Jack and Jill, was it? Were those the, the two characters, and and their dog Spot. And I remember thinking, you know, not one of them uh, wears a yarmulke, <laughs> and so they didn't look like. Orthodox Jew, and that's the world in which I grew up. And you know what? I didn't give a damn. What difference did it make? Why is it important uh, to have someone in a position of power or fame look like you? No, I'm serious. Why is that important? Does it affirm your importance? Is your, is your self-image that weak? And I'm not saying this is a criticism. I'm saying it really as a form of sympathy. That you gain this vicarious thrill? How exactly did it benefit any black man or woman in America that for eight years the President of the United States looked like them? What difference did it make? What if the President of the United States doesn't look like you, but helps you? As opposed to the President of the United States who might look like you, but doesn't do much for you. Uh, In other words, on a scale of descending significance, where would you place looks like me? Companies brace for Supreme Court rate ruling on affirmative action. 
This came out last week in the Wall Street Journal. A decision on race-conscious college admissions could have implications for corporate diversity programs. You mean like United Airlines, which said that it's reserving half of its flight school places for women and racial minorities? Do you really want your pilots to be chosen on that basis? Hmm. Well, it's uh, it's fascinating that three justices actually thought that it was constitutional. What those justices did is confuse what they would like to see with what is constitutional. They're not the same things. U.S. companies are preparing for a Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action to present new tests to their hiring and other personnel decisions. The outcome of two parallel cases, which involve admissions policies at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, won't directly affect employers' practices and policies, which are generated by a different statute than admissions. But... Lawyers and business leaders say they expect that any decision restricting or prohibiting race-conscious admissions could lead to, a more, to more legal challenges to company hiring and promotion decisions. So is, is America a happier place? Are racial relations better? The average black person or, or Hispanic, I would say Asian, but Asians actually have been hurt by admissions based on racial criteria because they're they're what is called the new Jews at Harvard. In the 1930s, Harvard decided to restrict the number of Jews because so many were getting in based on grades. That's what's happening now with Asians. That That there are any Asian Americans who vote Democrat is proof of the fact that a vast number of people do not think clearly. Pharmaceutical maker Merck and telecom company AT&T are among companies that have held internal meetings about a coming affirmative action ruling and its potential fallout, people familiar with the discussion said. Some companies are discussing whether to make changes to existing diversity programs including renaming them. (laughs) Oh, that's a great one. I'll tell you what, folks. You should, uh, we should have a lottery here on on what will the new name be uh, for uh, existing diversity programs. What... I I know the left like I know my family, but I can't figure out what will the new term be if diversity is rendered liable for legal action against it. What is a synonym for diversity? But I'll, I'll tell you this, they will come up with one. 
These people are geniuses. It's like gender-affirming is the opposite of what gender-affirming care does. Gender-affirming care is gender-denying care. from San Antonio, Texas, where I was really told to be concerned for my event last night, which was outdoor. It was a cigar event with listeners at my wonderful station here in San Antonio, and it turned out to be actually pretty pleasant. It was not humid. It was in the shade. And as I said at the beginning of the last hour, it vindicates my theory, and I have lived by this much of my life, maybe nearly all of my life, certainly since teenage years. It's not worth worrying, because if what you worry about happens, your worrying didn't stop it. And if it doesn't happen, you, you made yourself miserable for no good reason. So it's just a little example of that. Figured, all right. Worst comes to worst, I'll sweat. Or, more sophisticatedly, I will perspire. Mm. Supreme Court today has struck down use of race in college admissions. And the most interesting part to me of all of these is to read how the left reacts to any given issue. And I had that. I was reading to you from the Los Angeles Times. It's it's a remarkable piece. It 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 does encapsulate exactly what the left thinks of black people. It's a very, very telling piece. It's titled We're Really Worried. What do colleges do now after affirmative action ruling? And the the language is, uh, if you heard me the first hour, you heard this, I'm sorry. It is a, a rule of life that people don't remember something until they hear it at least twice. That's why you hear phone numbers in ads three times. They have done a lot of testing, people need to hear it three times before they actually even pay attention, let alone remember it. But when they say, this is, this, is what, uh, this is what blew my mind, that young blacks will feel that they don't matter. Many also fear that applications from black, Latino, and other students of color will drop, okay? I don't know, I don't know why. I don't know why. If they want to go to college, then maybe they'll drop in terms of prestigious colleges where it's very hard to get in and rigorous to stay in. But why why will it drop generally? So is a black student going to say, if I don't go to Princeton, then I'm not going to go to college? Why will it why will they drop? That's a, by the way, that's not a, a criticism of the LA Times piece, I, I, I don't get it. Why will they drop? 
you're less likely to get into a rigorous college, quote-unquote prestigious college. So your theory is if I don't go to a prestigious college, I won't go to college? Listen, as far as I'm concerned, I wish college... College students declined in number by half. But that's a separate issue entirely. But here's the key. Here's the key. A key priority will be to assure those students that they matter. So here was my point. Reading that. They're told now that they don't matter. They're told that only their skin color matters. We will accept you based on your skin color means you don't matter. You are irrelevant. You are a way of us white lefties feeling good about ourselves, taking in more black kids. That's all you are to these leftists. You don't matter now. Your race matters now. Hmm. That's really important. Young people, particularly young people of color, are going to receive this message as a message that they don't belong, said another left-wing fool named Christopher Nellum, executive director of Ed Trust West, a nonprofit organization focused on education equity. Just out of curiosity, if... Ed Trust West went out of business tomorrow. Would the country be a better, a worse, or make no difference place? The sweeping decision eliminated the use of race in admissions decisions nationwide for the first time since the high court allowed the practice in 1978 to promote diversity. Is there a constitutional requirement for diversity that I missed? Aren't judges supposed to rule on the constitutionality of an issue, not on the desirability of an issue? Students for Fair Admissions, a nonprofit opposed to racial preferences, alleged that Harvard and the University of North Carolina violate constitutional guarantees of equal protection by considering race in admissions decisions and that the Ivy League campus specifically discriminates against Asian Americans. Of course it does. <laughs> That's the whole point. point. The High Court agreed in a majority opinion written by Chief Justice John G. Roberts, Jr. The ruling noted that the appellate court found Harvard's affirmative action program resulted in fewer admissions of Asian American students and the Ivy League campus's assertion that race was never used as a negative factor in selections cannot withstand scrutiny. What a nice way of saying Harvard lied. <laughs> i got to use that from now on. This article is really a depth. All these phrases that I need to incorporate, whether you matter or not. That was that was the key. But this is a good one. It's not that Harvard lied. It's that its assertions cannot, what was the word? Withstand 
scrutiny. I love that. You know, the earth is flat. Well, sir, just need to tell you that that assertion cannot withstand scrutiny. I love it. That was uh, that was the Supreme Court's own words about Harvard. But Roberts also wrote that, quote, nothing prohibits universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected the applicant's life, unquote. Yeah, I guess I guess that's true. But once they do that, that's all. Won't they just shift to that? Or won't every non-white student know that they have to write in their college application how r- their race affected their life? And that is a uh, a dog whistle to the left. Hey, you want diversity? I'm your man or woman or neither. Got to remember that. A non-binary black. I don't understand why you can't be non-binary in race. I'm not kidding. If you could change sexes, how, how can you, why can't you change race? Which will continue to allow students to write about their backgrounds in college essays. Well, the word will get out. You write about how race affected you, and ideally, of course, it affected you adversely. You have suffered for being black at the hands of all the white supremacists you have dealt with. I don't understand why the universities will say, oh, we didn't accept him because of his race. We accepted him because of the way he handled adversity. Uh, institutions must consider that... Ba- Roberts added, yes, see. However, that institutions must consider that background in the context of applicants' quality of character or unique ability that the particular can applicant can contribute to the university and treat them based on experiences as an individuals, not on the basis of race. Well, this will be fascinating. Truly, truly fascinating to see how colleges get around this. There's no doubt that they'll get around it. That's all they'll have to say. Of course we didn't accept him because he's black. Why would you think that? And then what's your answer? Just when you thought it couldn't get any better, Mike Lindell with MyPillow is launching the MyPillow 2.0. When Mike invented MyPillow, it had everything you could ever want in a pillow. Now, nearly 20 years later, he discovered a new technology that makes it even better. The MyPillow 2.0 has the patented adjustable fill of the original MyPillow, and now with a brand new fabric that is made with a temperature-regulating thread. The MyPillow 2.0 is the softest, smoothest, and coolest pillow you'll ever own. For my listeners, the MyPillow 2.0 is buy one, get one free offer with promo code Prager. MyPillow 2.0 temperature regulating technology is 100% made in the USA and comes with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Just go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listeners square to the buy one, get one free offer. Enter promo code Prager or call 800-761-6302 to get your MyPillow 2.0 now. 
Hi, everybody. I want you to know of a project at Prager University, PragerU, as it's popularly known, that we have videos coming out gradually, obviously. All our videos are five minutes. There are now almost 600 of them. They are better than almost any college education because they give you wisdom as well as insight and facts. They're about everything. You, you cannot study biology or botany I, or math. want to make that clear. We do not teach STEM, science, technology, engineering, math. Okay. But otherwise, as one young man said to me years ago when we only had a third of the number up he said, I learned more at PragerU than I did at Princeton, which I believe. I'm not happy about it. Well, I'm happy about it in one sense. I'm not happy about what it says about Princeton. So one of the, our projects is actually to give you a, a brief bio of every president and to make it as objective as possible. There is zero political end. We're not trying to convince people of anything. We just want you to know that a great way to learn history, this is me speaking now, this is not a PragerU position, although it might be, but it has been my belief much of my life that the best way to learn history is through biography. You learn about one person, but you learn about the person's times, habits, culture. So we have a five-minute video on every president. And the latest is Franklin Pierce. And I would venture to say that 99% of Americans can't say a word about him. And that I, I suspect 80% of Americans never heard the name. Ask your waiter or waitress next time, do you know who Franklin Pierce was? By the way, I have done that. I get a big kick out of it. And the guesses are really adorable. Some think it's a band, which for all I know it is. Well, believe it or not, there are experts on presidents that most Americans don't know. One of them, whom I've now had on again, I'm now, I'm now having on again, is a bit, I'm a big fan of, Joseph Fornieri, and he is Professor of Political Science at the Rochester Institute of Technology, he heads a center there, which I'm going to ask him about, and he presents the new PragerU video, and it's the latest installment in our president's series. Franklin Pierce, a torn president in a torn country. Watch the, uh, or listen, you can watch at, uh, at the Salem News Channel, uh, but here's how it sounds the first minute of the Franklin Pierce video. By all accounts, Franklin Pierce, the 14th president of the United States, was a fine person. Charming, caring, deeply empathetic. These are all characteristics you want in a friend, and Pierce had many, but they don't necessarily make for a strong leader. Unfortunately, Pierce's appointment with history came when such a leader was sorely needed. Try as he might to fill the role, Pierce couldn't do it. Franklin Pierce was born November 23, 1804, in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Raised in the shadow of his prominent father, Benjamin, a Revolutionary War hero, Franklin began his political career shortly after graduating from Bowdoin College in 1824. 
He was a political natural. In addition to his good looks, he was an eloquent speaker. Gifted with a photographic memory, he almost always spoke without notes, connecting directly to his audience. He won his first election in 1829 to the New Hampshire State Legislature. In 1832, he was elected to Congress, and by 1837, he was a U.S. Senator, the youngest member at the time. The overriding political issue of the day was slavery. To understand Pierce, we need to understand his position on this issue. While not a slave owner himself, Pierce believed that the Constitution committed the federal government to protecting slavery. Not surprisingly, Pierce's position endeared him to his Southern colleagues. This support was key to his political career. All right, we'll stop it there. Uh, Frankly, I would like like to hear the whole thing again. I'm riveted by it. And uh, it it is the latest installment of our President series. And I'm going to talk to the the professor who made it when we come back. It, It truly is an area we don't know about Franklin Pierce, and yet the time in America was so crucial. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hi, everybody. Dennis Prager here. Give me one moment here because I am in... There we go. Okay, we're good. I am in San Antonio checking out all the connections. It's amazing that we can do it at all. It's a miracle. Joseph Fornieri is a professor of political science, Rochester Institute of Technology. The latest video for PragerU, we come out with a video every week and have for almost 10 years or about 10 years, is on the 14th president of the United States about whom most of you, including me, knew nothing. And now I am somewhat riveted. So, Professor, I want to ask you about the slavery issue because you mentioned in the video that was the riveting issue of the day. Yes. I don't think that Americans today are aware of how much of American life the issue of slavery dominated before the Civil War. Everybody knows about the Civil War. But is that fair to say it it was the issue and few are aware of that today? I I think that's that's a fair assessment. I think we we trend, you know, in general because there's so much to cover when you teach history classes. So you you compartmentalize things. You'll start with, you know, the American Revolution and then history 
you know, the, the slavery issue will seem to be dropped until you get right up until the Civil War or prior to it. So I don't think it, there's there's necessarily a malicious intent, but I think oh, it's, I, I don't it's, think so either. I, I just yeah. think people don't realize it. Yeah, I think it's important to, um, and there's been a lot of great scholarly work by James Oakes, for example, to um, really chronicle and document the tenacity of the anti-slavery forces that will form the nucleus of the Republican Party and how hard they fought, black and white. You know, it was a, it was a multi. Uh, well, what is the name of that book? Forgive me. What is the name of the book? There's a. I, I love this book. It's called um, Freedom National by James Oakes. And Freedom and National. Book. Yes, I'm going to give him a big plug here. He's in. He's down in New York, and um, he's an outstanding uh, scholar, as I see it, and just a. Um, you know, a person, a really uh, person of goodwill, fair-minded person. And the book, the book uh, chronicles in a very accessible manner. It's one of one of many, the, the struggle from the, you know, from the time of the uh, Constitution right up until the Civil War to contain slavery, to restrict it and to put it on a path of ultimate extinction. And he, you know, he looks at the different scenarios that the anti-slavery movement uh, sought to to combat slavery. Um, and there's a lot of important um, distinctions. For, for example, if we look at Franklin Pierce, he was very sympathetic to the South. He was, he was what was known as a doe face, a Northern man of, of Southern sympathies. And he believed that there was a property, a national property, right and a slave contained in the constitution and i know that's a that that sounds like a complicated distinction but other anti-slavery forces while they recognized they acknowledged slavery saw it as a state institution right that the the model was freedom national and slavery <clears throat> local or sectional and that meant the federal government was authorized to deal with this with this cancer and to restrict it and contain it. I was, I guess, I think it's humorous and I, I really enjoy the opportunity that um, the, the Prager gave me to to look at what the trio of failed presidents, <laughs> um, Pierce and Buchanan. I did I did Taylor who who, who died early, but Fillmore Pierce and, and Buchanan are the the failed trio of presidents. Uh, before Lincoln up to the Civil War era. And their example is important when we look at political greatness. It's also important to consider, right, it's opposite, you know, political failures and, and what went wrong and what their vices were. Um, so I, I found, I, I find these 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 characters uh, interesting. I tried to uh, keep this five minute video in terms of the, the, the big, big issue of slavery, uh, all of them, whether uh, it's Taylor, uh, Buchanan. You know uh, what, you know what you're, uh, what you just said prompted me to ask, and I've never asked this before, I've never even wondered about it, but now I am wondering about it. 
Was there any active anti-slavery sentiment or movement in the South? Um, that's a great question. I, I, you know, I think the South was extremely effective. Historians have written about this, and I'm a political scientist, but there, the that really beginning in the in the 1830s, there's a change in Southern sentiment, and a censorship regime goes into effect. And not only that, not only the censorship regime, but the South becomes much more militaristic and tenacious in in uh, protecting slavery. There's fear of slave revolts. Nat Turner's revolt occurs around this time. There's concern about Santo Domingo, uh, which occurred about 30 years later. So I, I don't think there's a meaningful anti-slavery <laughs> movement, um, even manumission. There were there were southern manumission um, societies that that sought to free and expatriate uh, blacks, colonize them to Liberia. That starts falling by the wayside. Of course, Henry Clay is the, is the great example. He's from Kentucky. Kentucky was a border state, um, but Lincoln and the leadership of the Republican Party. Uh, make note of this, and they make note of this this change in, in Southern public opinion in the 1830s. So that's a good point. Lincoln, right. unfortunately, yeah, a wished few that more there questions was for you. His video is up at PragerU. You'll learn a lot, and it's enjoyably presented. Professor Fornieri and I continue. everybody. Slavery in America and the presidents. The subjects of my dialogue here with Professor Joseph Fornieri, Rochester Institute of Technology, and he has done the latest video for Prager University on President Franklin Pierce, the 14th president. To put that into perspective, Lincoln is the 16th president. By the way, given your knowledge of that era, I don't know if you can answer this, but I've always been curious. Buchanan is the next president, right before Lincoln, and he was a bachelor, and he was the only bachelor to ever be in the White House. Did did people whisper about him at all, or it, it didn't matter to people? There was there was some whispering, and. Uh, letters to one of his friends, uh, one of his male companions that he lived with, uh, were destroyed by uh, both nieces, both men's nieces, I believe. Um, so we, you know, we don't we don't have a smoking gun, and um, scholars have speculated uh, about it, and there was some speculation back then, but I can't I can't say for sure. I did the Buchanan video. It's coming up. It's coming up uh, next. And... Yeah, no, I know. I I assumed your answer. Um, obviously, you didn't say it, but the the assumption was he might be gay, which doesn't mm-hmm. matter to me. It's just a, an interesting anecdote. Uh, yeah. In, in yeah. our in, in yeah in, in our history, but it is interesting that Americans did elect a bachelor, gay or not gay. Because generally speaking, 
eat to this day people trust men who are married or who were married more than they do bachelors is that fair Perhaps. to say maybe that's maybe that's changing <laughs> this time. i don't know it's an interesting question i don't know if it's changing that's why i say it's, it's a we just it, trust very <laughs> One more, one more question, uh, not related he to was again. Because... He was very Buchanan had an had an illustrious uh, service, public service record that did not serve him well once he became president. Right. Yes. Exactly. It's a, which is worthy of its own book. What serves well? We got thirty seconds left. I don't know if you saw the piece in the Wall Street Journal about the objections to my speech at Arizona State University. No, no, I, I didn't. Okay. Yeah, last week it was a big. It was the leading opinion. Opinion. It doesn't matter. If would there be protests if if someone like me came to your university? Would other, in other words, by by professors? There might be, but uh, RIT, I'm proud to say, has robustly sided uh, with, with I, free that's, speech. That's what I was been, asking. I all, all right, we got to go. You are you're a joy. And watch the video, folks, at PragerU.com. We continue. You know, folks, Dennis Prager here. There are many truly significant issues, obviously, in the world. And very few, if any, are more important than the following subject. China. And specifically trade with China, the Chinese economy, but it's all related to power because economic power is power. That is just the way things are in the world, and it makes sense. We had, under President Trump, a remarkable person as the United States trade representative, the 17th in our history, if I have a number correct, And the amazing thing is that the book, which just came out two days ago, which is a great title, No Trade is Free, Taking on China, Changing Course, Taking on China, and Helping America's Workers, is the subtitle. The book is praised by the president of the United Steelworkers and Marco Rubio. I can't think of another book written that would get praised, maybe one on... I don't know, your daily horoscope, I have no idea. Uh, It is a remarkable achievement, and uh, nobody knows China and its economy, no American, better than this man. And it's a a delight to have him on, Robert Lighthizer. The book is up at DennisPrager.com. No trade is free. Congratulations on all your life's work, sir. Well, you know, thank you very much, um, uh, Dennis. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm a fan, and I'm thank looking you. forward to this discussion. And, and I do appreciate the the, the 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 fact that somebody said, "How long did it take to read the or to write the book?" I said, "About 45 years." Yeah, that's probably true for almost every good book. And uh, this is this obviously is in that world. <clears throat> Let me start at the very present moment. How much has the Biden... I don't know the answer to this question. A lot of times I feel I do when I ask the guest because I want to get his view. But I don't know know how I would answer this. 
So I'm going to learn from you. How much has the Biden administration changed the Trump's administration's, the Trump administration's view of trade with China? So that's a, that's a really good fundamental question. So let me take a second to answer it, if we have a second. So first of all, an administration is composed of a variety of people, some of whom, um, uh, you know, agree with me and some of whom don't. Uh, Unfortunately, I think um, in this case, the president is in the group that doesn't. So the fundamental thing we have is the tariffs. President Trump put tariffs on $370 billion worth of Chinese products, and then export controls and a whole plan. They have kept that in place. Um, what they haven't done is is added additional tariffs. So that's the state of the, of the situation. You, when you ask, you know, kind of the next question, what do I predict? It worries me that the president does not seem to understand the fundamental point that China is an adversary uh, and an existential threat to our country and our way of life. He doesn't seem to get that. He diminishes the thing. So it worries me to tell you the truth that while they really haven't done much to, to, to um, um, counter China, that they'll go the other way uh, if he's reelected right now, politically, it'd be impossible to go the other way, but, but it worries me. He appears not to understand the fundamental problem. It is mind blowing what you just said. A president of the United States at this time that does not perceive the threat that China poses to the United States and to the Western world. How do you explain that? Well, so there are there are a lot of possible explanations. I'll get to one uh, last, but I, I think first of all, he was a foreign policy guy all his whole life, and foreign policy guys tend not to get this kind of thing. Uh, particularly, they don't get the economic threat; it's just not in their their DNA. Second, he has been sort of charmed as vice president uh, by the Chinese. You know, they heavily invested in his in his post-vice uh, presidency, presumably because they thought it was in their interest. They didn't do it out of out of kindness. Um, so uh, so the first thing is his general orientation is not good. Second, I think he has been charmed by them in a way that is troubling. Uh, and then, you know, thirdly, he has a lot of big business people. And, you know, his party is very much the party of big business and bankers. He has a lot of those people who are leaning on him not to not to do anything on China to quote stabilize. We can come back to that. The stabilize idea is nuts. But and then the fourth possibility, and this could be a combination of all, is that he had a business relationship with him, uh, or his son did, or his brother did, or his family did some kind of a business relationship. Now we don't know the details of that, and I'm not going to speculate because I I try to stay in stuff that I'm really an expert on. I would only say this, Dennis, that if there is or was some relationship, if that's the case, then the Chinese have the tapes, they have all the emails and messages, they have all the bank records and all the information. So if there was some business relationship there, 
then China has got a, a, a dossier that thick and, and it's got all of it in it. So that gives them a fair amount of leverage. Wow. <laughs> Every one of the four reasons is scary. Is that a, a factor, you think, in his reaction to Russia? I mean, he's he certainly perceives Russia as an existential threat, but not China. Is that is that part of the reasoning, those four reasons? Well, he clearly, he he, do, he, do, he just doesn't get China. Now, look at, I was, uh, you know, I don't like Russia at all, but the notion that Russia is an existential threat is ridiculous, right? It's got an economy smaller than Canada. I agree with you. So it has no, I, I know you do, it has no impact at all. Now, a lot of the old foreign policy types are kind of hooked into that 1980s, 19, uh, I guess 1970s, 1980s mentality. But um, but but I don't know if his attitude towards Russia is affected by his his um, his inability to recognize the Chinese threat or not. I mean, honestly, I honestly don't know. My guess is in his mind, they're independent uh, and they really shouldn't be because they're you know, Russia is now a junior partner. Right. Uh, so so let me ask you, even though I, I know your your masterful expertise in the economic issue and if you don't want to answer this it's fine do you believe that china is watching our response to the russian invasion and that is part a big part of their calculus on whether to invade taiwan so so i think for sure that is true right they would be anyone who doesn't believe that just you know is incapable of of, of processing thoughts Everything in the world affects their their decision on what they want to do on Taiwan. There's no doubt in my mind, but that Xi Jinping expects, well before he he passes on, to have Taiwan integrated fully into China, and, and it's just a question of time, right? And he's going to pick the time that he thinks is best for him, uh, best for China. So there's no doubt in my mind that that he wants to do that. And the fact that Russia has had trouble, I'm sure he discounts it because a lot of it is just incompetence and overestimate, overestimating on behalf of the Russians. But but I'm sure he's calculating that in and he's calculating that in um, that the United States has 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 come to their aid. So I the, the other the other way to think about this, too, is another way there's a calculation uh, is that he's also probably aware that we've used up an awful lot of our of our um, uh, uh, capacity, our our uh, ammunition and our military capacity. Yeah, that's a frightening fact. And that's got but, to incur. Right, right. So, so they're getting two messages. America is getting weaker, but on the other hand, America will intervene if we invade Taiwan. So my get they well. Clearly, they have seen us not intervene, but at least give weapons on behalf of of the Ukraine. But 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 my guess is they still think uh, that we would uh, react militarily uh, in an invasion of Taiwan. I believe that's probably part of their calculation, and they're probably right. And they also are seeing the they're they're being able to calculate a little more easily the economic effect on them, because it would be a generational economic effect on them and on us, by the way. 
um, because uh, because of the stupidity of our past trade policy. If if they did take Taiwan, our 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 technology we you know would instantly be back in the 70s somewhere because we don't have semiconductors and other other things that we need. Yeah, uh, we're going to continue. The, the China issue is paramount. Robert Lighthizer, No Trade is Free. The book is up at DennisPrager.com. My friends, if I could talk to one person in the United States about China... It would be Robert Lighthizer, U.S. trade representative under under Donald Trump, and he's just written a book, No Trade is Free, which is exactly right. No, no health care is free. No lunches are free. That's, that's, that's the great lesson of life. Everything comes with a price. That's the, the nature of the, earth, the world in which we live. No trade is free. Changing course, taking on China, and helping America's workers. You don't need America's workers, just helping America and the world. Again, the book is up at DennisPrager.com. So explain to me this. I'm so, I'm so glad I have you on because these things have troubled me for years, and I, I didn't have a clue how to answer them. How did we get into the position of having China, or any country, but China, a communist regime that adores the greatest mass murderer in human history, Mao Zedong, how did that happen, that they became America's manufacturing base? So, you know... First place, uh, you know, taking advantage of us uh, and our stupid policy uh, was what any sensible dictatorship would do, communist or otherwise. But if you think back, uh, basically, our relationship with them uh, probably changed at the time that Nixon reached out to them. And I really view that as them more reaching out to us than us reaching out to them. So you had the Soviet Union. Now I'm going back to the 60s and 70s. The Soviet Union and China were both communists, but they were kind of at outs with each other. And uh, they had China has a million soldiers on the on the uh, the uh, on the Russian border or Soviet border, and they have you know ten divisions on that. We reach out. We develop this kind of the start of this relationship. They realize after Mao, they get uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping and they realize they need our technology. They need money from us in the form of trade surpluses and that we're the easiest place to get it, right? We're a big, great big market and we'll go for it. And they start charming people. So that happens, Dennis, at the same time, the wall comes down, there's this hubris in America that uh, you know that it's the end of history, and that 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 uh, we, you know we've kind of won the Cold War, but actually kind of won history, and and that you know the American way is the way of the future, and those things kind of come together in the Clinton administration, and they passed this law with a lot of Republican support. They pass a law which says we're going to give most favored nation treatment to China, 
All right, till then, if you were a U.S. company, business guy that wanted to manufacture in a cheap place, you didn't do it in China because you thought if you did, they had low tariffs, but they weren't permanent. So the next year you could lose them. So who's going to put a $100 million plan in, in a place in China if the next year the whole economics change? Once we passed that in 2000, by the way, as Bill Clinton went out the door and was collecting furniture to put in the van, he gets this thing passed with Republican support. Uh, and, and my own view is if I had, if I could get one Christmas wish, it would be to find out how much Chinese money is in the Clinton Foundation. I would like to know that. Oh, that's uh, fascinating. That yeah, is I'll, fascinating. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, on that, Dennis, I wrote an article in 19, this is how long I've been on this, in 1997 for the New York Times. And you'll remember in this in the 96 campaign, there was this big thing about Indonesian money going into the Clinton campaign. And this article said that wasn't Indonesian money, that was Chinese money. And I said, and what does China want? I said, they want MFN with the United States permanently and they want to join the WTO. And then I said, if they do, no manufacturing job in America will be safe. That's all on the record, 1997. I asked you or anyone else to Google it and read it, and you'll say, wow, uh, people who said you couldn't predict it, well, he predicted it. So um, so for whatever reason, and once again, it's like the other one, we don't know all the facts and probably never will, and people can draw their own conclusions. For whatever reason, on the way out, he passes this thing, which makes it permanent. Now a U.S. company can move over there and know they can ship back to the United States at our regular, very low tariffs forever. And you see the trade deficit go from you know $20 billion to $120 billion in a couple of years. Now it's officially at $380 billion, but there's a couple of mistakes about the way it's calculated. It's probably more like $500 billion that we're shipping them every year. So Deng Xiaoping and these, these people came in here and said to the Americans, we're going to reform, right? We're going to be like you guys. Really what they were saying was we want to get your technology. We want to get billions and billions of dollars to build our military and to build up our technology. That's what they were thinking. But, but, but all these, these, these intellects of the 90s said, oh, this is a great thing. So then you see 2000, 2001, they joined the WTO and the trade deficit zooms up. Manufacturing jobs in the United States go exactly in the opposite direction. And we're shipping our wealth and we probably shipped five or six trillion dollars worth of our wealth to them since those days. This is riveting and I'm glad there are no sharp objects on my desk. Because I might use one on me, not on you, on me. <laughs> it is, it, it is, if one perceives what you're saying, it is truly depressing. So I was going to ask you what animated Americans, and, and you threw out this bombshell that the Clinton Foundation might have gotten a lot of money from China. But obviously, the Republicans who supported him were not getting money from China, to the best of our knowledge. Why were they on board? So, so that's why I say it was coming together of a lot of factors. There was this, it's this, Dennis, it's this, this 
theology of free trade, this um, uh, praying to this false god that that we are just about consumption, right? So a lot of, and then you had the combination of that with a lot of um, a big business, right? Who would who make political contributions and 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 uh, lobby the Congress? So. Um, you know, it was a combination of two or three things like that. And and the Republicans, I'm sure, were influenced by businesses, which said, oh, this is going to be great. We have we have one, and then those days, one billion people we can sell stuff to. Yeah, well, that may be fine, except that, that they're not buying it because we don't really have a market. And uh, it's all rigged, right? I call it the, the big con. They all have a rigged market, so they're not going to buy anything that they don't decide they need. And then they're all only right. going to buy it as long as they need it. So it was basically a lot of mistakes and combined with hubris. It is a joy to speak to you. Stay on with me. His book is up at DennisPrager.com. No trade is free. This is my uh, nomination for one of the greatest uh, interviews I've ever had. I am riveted by this man, Robert Lighthizer, who is the U.S. trade representative under Donald Trump. The common sense issuing forth and the phraseology, I'm telling you, sir, I, I am just reveling in this. When you said the theology of free trade, I, I could levitate. I would have begun to levitate. That is the perfect phraseology. It's the theology, free trade. So I, I, I really need to understand. The United States, of its own volition, sold its manufacturing abilities and base to a country that hates us. And Americans, I guess, including me for a time, didn't think about it. I didn't think it was good, and I didn't think it was bad. I didn't think about it. And and I, I I sinned because that's my job to think about all these issues. But I didn't. Everything seemed less expensive. I didn't buy the theology, but I as I said, I didn't I didn't oppose it either. But it's exactly what it was. So I want to understand if we are going to if we were going to enable another country to do our manufacturing for us because then we could get things cheap. Why did we choose China and, and not, let's say, South Korea or Taiwan? Um, I, I, I assume it's because we thought we could sell then to the largest market in the world. Is that the reasoning? Dennis, you're um, suggesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah, can you? Go ahead. We, I didn't hear the sound from the outside. Go ahead. All right. So I'm sorry. In the first place, you're assuming there was reason involved in the process instead of hubris and greed. Uh, the other thing I challenge is you say we sold our manufacturing. I think we actually gave it away. So we mm -hmm. opened up to a lot of people, but the Chinese were the best at taking advantage of it. I mean, that's more or less the way I see it. They went in there, they induced these companies, U.S. companies, uh, to, to, to shift their manufacturing to the United States. They facilitated it. We allowed it to happen. Um, and, and, and the other thing is it's, it's 
when we talk about manufacturing, we shouldn't we shouldn't be outsourcing our manufacturing to anyone because most Americans do not have a college degree. And in that group, which is basically the group that makes this country great, in that group are 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 people in the middle class because of manufacturing or because of jobs spun off from manufacturing. And R&D is basically about manufacturing and innovation and technology and all of these things. So I, it was, I don't think anybody sat back there. Well, I shouldn't say that. There were people who sat back and said, we're post-industrial. You, you heard that, remember, when we were younger. Yep. And that was a part of this free trade kind of nonsense. Um, and, and we would just invent things and the Chinese would make them. There were a group who thought that. And um, I can remember telling one of them, you know, I've met a lot of Chinese and they're capable of thinking up stuff too. You know, they're not, they're not a lot. They're about the same smart as they're as smart as we are. So uh, this whole notion didn't make any sense. But what happened is we opened the door because of this false religion uh, and because of greed on behalf of some companies. And then the Chinese rushed in. And then that multiplies, right? The more they did it, the more money they had, the more influence with people to allow it to happen. And so now what we need is a strategic decoupling. We need to phase in a period where we have balanced trade, no real connection on technology, and real restrictions on outgoing and ingoing investment. I mean, because right now, I, I like to say, we are feeding the crocodile that is going to eat us and has told us it wants to eat us. And so the yep, time to... Yep. He doesn't masquerade as a friendly uh, puppy. No, it's a. It's a um, I am a crocodile. I want to devour you. Thank you for enabling me to do so. The book is "No Trade Is Free," about taking on China and about helping us and changing course. I have so many more questions. You might as well. Again, it's Robert Lighthizer. The book is up at DennisPrager.com. And I, I thank God that we had this man as our trade representative. We need him again. We return in a moment. One of the many indications of the wisdom of this man, thought to believe he was in the U.S. government. He has so much wisdom. Robert Lighthizer, who was U.S. Trade Representative under Donald Trump, is that he spoke about greed and hubris as animating factors in enabling China to do our manufacturing for us. So let's talk about the subtitle, Changing Course, Taking on China and Helping America's Workers. Out of curiosity, did you happen to see Nikki Haley's piece on China? I did not. So take a look for your own edification, because uh, here is someone running for president. She obviously is not an odds-on favorite, but she's a serious woman. And I I thought the piece was magnificent, and it echoes, at least in principle, your theories. Uh, about what uh, what has happened to us vis-a-vis China. Why don't you, by the way, before we talk about changing course, what, 
Why don't you address the issue, which, again, most Americans don't know about. I, I did in this case. How much land China has bought in the United States? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, they bought um, hundreds of thousands of acres, and it's, uh, they shouldn't buy any anywhere. But a lot of it is right next to uh, either military operations or, in some cases, near, um, and you know, near facilities where where you can track the movement of the military. Um, it's uh, it's it's absolute madness. And I'll tell you how much land you can go over and buy in China. And you know, you could put all of it in your pocket and sell room for your for your handkerchief. So, it's it's it is it is absolutely insane that we let them buy a, a, a foot of, of, of That's uh, right. American. It's, uh, it, it, right. It's, it's as if we've been governed by people who want America to fail. It, it, I mean, I do believe, by the way, that that, that, that exists, uh, certainly now, but I, I don't have to get into that. So what what would you like feasibly... I know what we would all like to see happen. I would like every company to leave China. Uh, but what feasibly is possible to do to now at least minimize the damage? So, so first of all, if, if you're in a competition and it's, it is vital to your existence and you're losing it, you want to change direction rather dramatically. And that, unfortunately, is where we find ourselves. And I have... Uh, after I have a just on China alone in here, I have seven chapters and a you know a, a, a fair amount a number of pages about the indictment, the nature of the problem, how we got here, how they think, and then I have something called the prescription. And to me, you phase into decoupling, you put substantial tariffs on all of their products, and you get back to balanced trade. Now, if you have trade of 150 billion dollars a year going each way and it's balanced. I'm not against that, as long as it doesn't involve technology. And the second thing you do is you put on more export restraints and you force American companies not to integrate their their technology through China. Uh, And then you give them some period of time to change. And if you have a clear direction, they'll do it. And then the final thing is we we can right now take take clear steps um, to, to regulate inbound investment farmland, for example, but it ought to be a lot of other things. Why would we let them invest anything in here once you realize the nature of the threat? Unless you think for some peculiar reason it's of unique importance to the United States to do it. And then you stop funding them and you have to, you're going to have a lot of opposition because you've got a lot of guys uh, on Wall Street uh, who, are, who are getting very rich. Um, putting American money there. I'll, I'll give you a thought, just a small thought that's, that people don't even think about. We've got a lot of working class people who have their money in pensions, and, and, and those pensions, some of them are at least partially invested in China. The workers don't know that, and, and the investors don't even have the, the basic information and can't audit the Chinese companies. So it's, 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 it's a half-witted sort of an investment, but we're, we're, we are funding our own demise that that is what is so frustrating about this between that's the right. trade depth right. and all and technology depth and all these things we literally are we're making it easy on them by the way for the record tell me if this is silly is it tilting at windmills when i have a choice i don't buy items made in china 
Yeah. Now, I mean, for sure, that's a smart policy. But, but, you know, I used to have this argument with these free traders. They would say, well, Americans choose these products. Well, you, you know, forever, if you went into Walmart in the 70s, all right, or let's just say even the 80s, and you bought Christmas lights, they would probably be made in the United States. And then Walmart went out and gave a contract to Chinese companies, you know, in the early 2000s for their supplies for the next three or four years. So you walked into that Walmart, you didn't say, okay, here's the American one and it's $1 more than the Chinese one. No, Walmart made that decision for you and you didn't have a choice to buy American. That's right, so wow. Much what is going on is you don't, you don't have that choice. That choice is being taken away from you. But for sure, you shouldn't buy stuff on Amazon that's made there. And they're trying to keep look at most countries require, or at least I don't know about most, many countries require Amazon to say where things are made. They don't do it in the United States. They don't tell that's you right. that everything. I look at product after product now, and it doesn't say where. I, I On occasion, it will say designed in the United States. Yeah. To, well, fool, the, to fool the consumer. That's a tip-off. That's exactly right. Final segment coming up. This is this is so important. Robert Lighthizer, properly named because he sheds light. He was the U.S. trade representative under Donald Trump. For those of you who don't think that Trump made a difference, uh, this man alone was reason to celebrate Donald Trump in the White House. No Trade is Free is the book. We will continue final segment coming up. All right, everyone, this is extraordinarily important. As the book and the man are, well, Robert Lighthizer. No Trade is Free about so-called free trade with China and the devastating impact that this is having on us, our economy, and the free world. He was the U.S. trade representative under Donald Trump, and the book came out two days ago, No Trade is Free. You mentioned greed and hubris. Was part of the hubris the belief, which this I, I do recall, being completely aware of and finding to be utterly nonsense. Well, they'll become more like us because the economic incentives of free trade will induce them to open up their society. Was that part of the hubris? Absolutely. And it was it was just utter nonsense. It showed a complete misunderstanding, not yes. only of the Chinese, but of human, of human nature itself, it was so bizarre. The idea was if we shifted enough of our wealth to them, they'll become like Switzerland or Canada or something. It was complete. They didn't understand communism. They don't understand Marx. They don't understand Mao. They, it was, it was, but it was part of this, you know, end of history craziness that went on in the nineties. It was part of that. That well, That's the right. Balls out and we're we're here forever you know uh you know hosanna and it was just it it was people who didn't know anything about history and i would say didn't have a clue about human nature 
but they were all taken in and that was precisely what they said that's precisely what they said for those who don't see i'm just smiling because every word is a gem and so right about human nature about communism the idea that as you get wealthier you will become more open to having what you believe in disappear i it's so you know what it is in a nutshell they believe in something increasingly americans don't believe in anything and those who believe in something always defeat those who don't believe in anything my friends this man is a gem robert lighthizer the book is no trade is free I, I, I'm not going to only read it, sir. I'm going to try to memorize it. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I used to say there, there has to be one book. People would ask me for one book that tells everything that people like you and me believe in this area. And I said, I can't find it, so I'm going to write it. And there I did. You certainly did. Thank you, sir. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you for having me on. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.